One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number eight of our fantastical, magical and sometimes macabre podcast. So glad you could join us today, whether it be with a cup of tea or coffee or a glass of something delicious. Glad to have you here. Our first story today is The New Deal by Trent Jameson. Trent lives in Brisbane with his wife Diana, where he writes all kinds of interesting fantasy and steampunkish stories for publication by various publishers. Full details on his stories and publishers on the Triple F website, of course. Just click on over. When not writing, he works at a very interesting-sounding bookshop called the Avid Reader Bookshop. Love that name. The story is read first today by Martin Rato who is an educator, writer, and musician. He's worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including being a technical writer and software developer, a teacher, a symphony musician, and an audiobook narrator. So, here it is. The New Deal by Trent Jameson. The New Deal by Trent Jameson. Do you hear about the New Deal? Jacoby asked, crouching down by the nearest body on the flat, corrugated iron roof. Olmer shrugged. Just rumors, nothing definite. Last one wasn't so good. These two aren't going to benefit. He took a step back from the bodies, careful to stay on the line of nails marking the beam beneath. The roof was rusty. It creaked with his movement. Jacoby grinned and brushed flies from his cracked lips. These blokes been dead a while. No shit. Ulmer squinted down at the dead blokes, then at Smoketown beyond the roof, the city swinging like a curse of concrete and steel up Beacon Hill, dark steeples and flat-roofed towers. A storm, days and brewing, rose above it all, bleak sky and detonations stretching up and up, almost to the snake-god Nahibakao's overarching gut. No rain, though. Not yet. On the western edge of town, John Shapti's doll factory belched black smoke that mingled with the cloud. Nearer, no more than a block distant, cows were being slaughtered in the abattoir. Ulmer's ears rang with the thuck, thuck, thuck of the air gun and the bovine shrieks. The blokes on the roof had stopped shrieking days ago. Jacoby passed him a wallet. No ID, just forty dollars and twenties. There was also a photo, family shot, wife and kids. That sort of shit hit Ulmer every time, just ate him up. The photo was old, pre-deal, peeling up at the corners, smudged with hope and yearning. He slipped the wallet in the Ziploc bag, tucked the photo in his pocket. Ulmer grimaced. 
He knew the dark places that stuff took you in this post-deal world, but he kept the photo, and if Jacoby noticed, he didn't say anything. Ulmer split the money with Jacoby, standard practice, not worth the paperwork. The other corpse had nothing but a pair of glasses, too scratched to be worth anything, and a rabbit's foot, hollowed and weighted with a small lump of lead. Ulmer slipped the rabbit's foot in his pocket, too. Sacrifice, certainly not theft, always somebody trying to make their own deal. Ulmer motioned at the dark over smoke down, a thick black smudge like a sketch of depression. Maybe call up the storm. Sacrifices aren't this subtle. This is old-school haruspication. Jacoby pointed to the neat incisions in the corpse's torsos, the care with which the livers of each victim had been placed on their chest. The bloke on the left's wire-rimmed glasses weren't even spattered with blood. Jacoby glanced toward the dark horizon. And that storm's been brewing longer than these bastards have been dead. Can't tell you what the querents were trying to divine from these guts, but I can tell you what they're saying. Jacoby grinned. Storm's coming. Ulmer took a lazy swing at him. Too slow, mate. Ulmer grunted. He wiped the sweat from his brow. Let's get to work. Storm broke as they turned away from the corpses. Jacoby sprinted to the edge of the roof. Ulmer followed fast as he dared because this was no mild precipitation but rage. They couldn't do anything about the bodies. They were too short-staffed, although Ulmer was certain Jacoby would soon be making a call to Mr. Shapti. The dollmaker would find a use for them. All that iron and lightning tensed Ulmer up as they clambered off the roof. Jacoby seemed unperturbed. Still, he jumped when the storm snatched half the roof free, and he crossed himself when the bodies, laughing, lifted and tumbled, flew through the air west against the wind. Ulmer could hear their cackling clear above the rain and thunder. Now that shit I don't like. Jacoby had dropped to the ground, almost to his knees. He rose unsteadily from the crouch. Ulmer was already dashing for the car, even if he wasn't designated driver. Mud that had been dust a minute before sucked at his boots. He watched the dead bloke's stumbling, shrieking flight. Seen worse. Jacoby stank up the car with his sweat and his music. Bobby Darren, Mac the Knife, or Beyond the Sea, Elmer didn't know. His brain shut out the lyrics once he recognized the voice. Hate that shit. Elmer wiped the rain from his face. He could feel the soot there in his skin. Jacoby turned up the volume. You drive? You pick the tunes. That shut Elmer up. He couldn't drive. That part of him hadn't come over post-deal. But you couldn't dwell on what you lost, because it wasn't just memories or skills. The deal-makers had bartered more than half the population out of existence. You couldn't dwell on the things and people you'd lost. When it came to the deal, you had to remember that things had been bad, real bad. Start thinking, and you'd start sinking, spiraling down into those dark and reaching days, into the various calamities. Ulmer considered winding down the window to let out the stink and the music rattling around in his head, but the rain still pounded from the bleak clouds, so he drowned in music and stench and the car crashed into smoke town. Piece of shit car. Piece of shit tunes. He bummed a cigarette off Jacoby. His partner scowled. You owe me a few of those now. I'm good for them, Ulmer said. Jacoby turned up the volume some more. The speakers rattled. The wipers tick-tocked on their fastest setting. Smoke down swam behind their swinging beat. They passed the brothels, the dolls out, their smooth wooden limbs and breasts slick with rain. Jacoby leered, even though he had a doll waiting at home. Ulmer watched them, suspicious of their predatory movements, their calculated desire. He could feel them from his balls up. Smoketown was a city of longing, pent up like that storm, but with no release. Storm didn't last long. 
mostly spent by the time they reached the station house. Dorian sat at the front desk, flicking through a dog-eared porno magazine. He lowered it without shame, took their guns and counted out the bullets with sweaty fingers, his fingertips smearing the desk. "'Bullets all there, or we'd be telling you they weren't,' Jacoby snarled. Dorian flashed his black teeth. "'Your time of the month, eh, Jacoby?' "'You shut up!' "'Bean in?' Ulmer asked. Dorian laughed. Bean was always in, chained to his desk, literally, a silver chain, links an inch thick, part of the deal. Some things hadn't come over, other things had, and one of those was Bean. Bean was always in, down below, in the basement, filing, running through the paperwork, following leads and listening, always listening. Bean doesn't need to see this, Jacoby said, and Ulmer could tell he was thinking of his desk and his notes and all that paperwork. Job was mostly paperwork. You don't need to come, Ulmer said, heading out to buy his offering. Jacoby didn't look back. Suit yourself. Bought with a dead man's cash. You're all class. Bean sniffed at the burger, fries, and coke that Ulmer had dropped on his desk. Ulmer ignored the slur. To your taste? he inquired, about as formal as he got. Bean wiped at the sweat beneath the neat part in his hair. Always hungry, Ulmer. Crack your knuckly bones and suck the marrow out if it weren't for this chain. Bean leaned over the desk, his dead breath washed against Ulmer's face. Thank Christ. No, not Christ. Something darker, something crueler. Like they say, you don't make deals with gods, though people never learn. Isn't it enough that there's a god in the sky and that I'm down here? Don't you people know when to stop? If people stopped making deals, I'd be out of a job, Omer said. Bean swallowed the food down in a couple of gulps. The soft drink he took a little longer on, his big black eyes never leaving Ulmer. "'What do you want?' Bean asked. Two dead blokes,' Ulmer said, and gave him the details. Sketch the knife marks, the position of the bodies in relation to the major celestial points. He pulled out the heavy rabbit's foot. Bean's eyes widened a little at that, with theatrics or genuine surprise, Ulmer wasn't sure. Ulmer put the rabbit's foot on the desk. Bean leaned down and sniffed it. He popped it in his mouth. He spat it out, his face twisting in a grimace. This isn't a rabbit's foot. It's an arrow pointing somewhere like the Haruspication. It's a message. What's it say? Bean finished his soft drink, dropped the bottle in the bin, wiped the watermark from the desk with a paper towel, dropped that in the bin, too. It says you don't want to pursue this. Bean slid the foot back to him. Almer noted he was careful to touch it with just the dark squares of his nails. Almer picked it up. Bean had lost interest, his eyes already straying to the papers piled up in his in-tray. Do your paperwork and leave it on someone else's desk. You're too thorough. Inside job? Shit, yeah. You leave it alone or you'll regret it. Almer thanked him and got out of there and home, not sure what to do. The photo of the dead bloke and his family in his pocket. Ulmer woke just as a resolute, went and bought some cigarettes and coffee and caught up with Jacoby at the station house. I don't understand you. Jacoby picked the cigarettes Ulmer owed him out of his pack, careful in every selection. You make a good wage, better than me, and you piss it all away, always hanging out for the next paycheck. One day you won't make such a good wage, and what are you going to do then? Ulmer snatched the packet from his partner. Piss a lot less. 
Seriously, you could live in a nice place up on Beacon Hill. You could save. You could get yourself a doll. I'm not buying a doll. Jacoby laughed. Explains all the calluses. We've got work to do. Ulmer pulled the rabbit's foot from his pocket. Bean tried to warn me off this. And we're still hunting? Jacoby raised his hands in exasperation. Ulmer, we're not here to solve crimes. We're here to make sure that it all runs smoothly, that people don't start making any more deals. Get what comfort you can from the small amount of suffering you might reduce, but realize it's just a small amount of suffering, and that people are always making deals. That's where you're wrong, Ulmer said, at least this time. You don't get warned off unless it's something big, maybe something to do with this new deal. Jacoby shrugged. All right. But if it is, not much we can do. Not exactly our purview. But we can find out. Maybe. But not today. We've got other things to attend to. Doll factory today. Mr. Shapti waited for them at the gates of the factory. He passed them both fat envelopes. Almer slid his into a jacket pocket. He looked up and down the street. Let's get this done, he said. Mr. Shapti's eyes narrowed. Why, you got something better to do? Mr. Shapti waited a while. Almers said nothing. Yeah, you got nothing better to do. They passed through the gates. Factory wasn't the right name for this place. The dolls weren't made here, just repaired. They came from the desert unearthed by the winds. Shapti's men dragged them back here and cleaned them. Jacoby whistled. Shit, that's a lot of wood. And there were hundreds of dolls, twitching and hanging from their wires. Mr. Shapti nodded. Winds have been blowing strong in the desert. Lots of dolls. Lots of nightmares, too. Our boys have been picking spiders from their flesh. Almer and Jacoby looked over the bodies, checking they were kosher, that no human flesh was used. Not checking too close. Almer had heard that you had to have something human in the doll, something to activate them, an organ, a piece of brain. One of them bled from its painted nose. Mr. Shapti clucked and delicately wiped the blood away with a handkerchief. Messy, he murmured. Make sure it doesn't happen again, Jacoby Mock admonished. They signed his clearances. Thank you, lads, he said, folding the paper away in a pocket, whistling for his workers to get back to work. See you next month. Oh, one more thing. Almer raised an eyebrow. Mr. Shapti coughed, looked a little embarrassed, like it wasn't his job to ask for favors. My lads say they saw a dead bloke on the edge of the desert road. And they didn't bring him in? We don't send you to get the dolls, do we? He was out there, dead and not dead, if you know what I mean. All haruspicated. Almer pulled out the photo. This the guy? Mr. Shapti squinted. No, he grinned conspiratorially. Buy that photo off you, though. Know a lot of collectors who are into that shit. Almer slipped the photo back into his jacket pocket. Wouldn't have taken you for one of them, Mr. Shapti said. Nostalgia's poison. Almer ignored him. He isn't, Jacoby said, though he gave Almer an odd look. Almer brought out the rabbit's foot. You know what this is? Mr. Shapti gave a dry cough. You get rid of that. Don't make deals with the old gods, eh? Mr. Shapti blinked. You've got better stuff to do, believe me. What kind of world do we live in? Almer asked, counting out his bribe, leaning against the bonnet of the car. It was all there. Dead and not dead, all this shit. 
Jacoby flicked a cigarette stub at a passing truck. Cattle from down south for the slaughter yards. You know what kind of world we live in. In one sweeping gesture he encompassed the snake-bound sky, the dusty road, the city. It's one we can live in. Before the deal things were bad, not just what happened at the poles. Darkness was coming, and it would have drowned all of us. When that thing happened in Perth, shit, my best mate lived there. I saw the screaming earth, the Swan River, nothing but a slick of blood. None of us could have lived with that. It was never going to be a good deal. I remember waking that first day, Almer said, in a bed that was mine but wasn't, and I walked out and there it was, the sky not blue but ruddy with the belly of the snake. Oh, and that was the least of it. Another truck rumbled by, lifting up dirt red as the sky. Shit, you're maudlin' today, Jacoby said. You got that rabbit's foot? Yeah, Almer handed it to him. Jacoby threw the rabbit foot after the cattle truck. What you do that for? Shapped he wasn't bullshitting. Christ, Almer, even Bean told you to drop it. I'm looking out for you. Bullshit, you're scared. Not denying it. Well, it's going to get scarier. I'm driving out to the cold desert. See if I can find that dead bloke. You can't drive. Almer looked Jacoby square in the eyes. The air smelt like cattle, and the shit of cattle, and dust. The air smelt old and sear and used up. But their lungs still took it, still sucked up each breath. I don't like you much right now, Jacoby said. More Bobby Darren. Olmer supposed he deserved it, but it didn't stop him grinding his teeth all the way to the edge of town. The road petered out a few minutes' walk from the ridge that bordered the desert. There was a good path up the ridge, but it was steep, and both were panting by the time they reached the top. They paused and stared back over its smoke town and the bleak black sea that washed against its eastern shore. "'I hate that place,' Jacoby said. Hate the sea. Why? Almer put his back to the city and the sea. He didn't lose as much. Fuck you! Almer was surprised at the anger in Jacoby's voice. So I wasn't married. Yeah, I didn't have kids for them old bastards to deal away. But I lost my ma. I lost my sisters. I got on, Jacoby sighed. You ever think that maybe the deal wasn't to save us, but to save them? Sometimes, Almer said. He let it drop. Neither of them believed it. The air clear enough that Almer could see Nahibakao's belly occluding the sky, dark where it neared the horizon. People didn't like to talk about the snake god, just like they didn't like to talk about the sea. Sometimes a meteor or some other such thing might punch its way through Nahibakao's flesh and a brief and bloody rain would ensue. The other side of the ridge faced the desert. One of the dead blokes, the one with glasses, sat there on the desert's edge. It turned when they approached, then stood up. Almer could see the hole the haruspication had left. Bones gleamed. You don't want me. I've not the teeth for it. The dead bloke's voice came slow and soft. Almer frowned. He glanced over at Jacoby. His partner shrugged. Neither one of them wanted to get much closer. Sometimes things hunted in the sand, dolls that had gotten a bit of life in them, and a lot of hunger. Come over here. Almer took a deep breath, sidled up close, near enough to grab the dead bloke if he was quick. The dead bloke opened his mouth, and Ulmer could see the cracks and stubs barely had any teeth at all. It stepped onto the sand. No, you don't. Ulmer reached for him. Something beneath the sand got to the dead bloke first. The dead bloke went under. Ulmer caught a glimpse of a rolling doll's eye and long, smooth wooden limbs. Ulmer lost his balance, fell back on his arse, 
and scrambled back away from the sand. Shit! Almer got to his feet. A hundred meters away, a doll's head jutted from the sand, driftwood pale. A wooden hand poked out not too far west of it. Wooden fingers flexed, then stilled. Do you want to risk it? Jacoby's voice had an edge, a tension Omer wasn't used to hearing. Maybe Jacoby was starting to enjoy it a little. Omer laughed. <laughs> Not a chance. Let's get back to the car. Omer's room possessed the aching tension of a thousand perfunctory wanks. It smelled of sweat and smoke and cheap wine. He got out the photo. Dad, arm around his wife, her dark hair luminous in the reflected light of the flash, the kids smiling. It wasn't even a good photo, not very well framed, eyes all red. And yet he yearned for this moment captured. He thought of his own wife and kids, and that spiral of thought led only one way. Where were they? Smoketown was what you get when dry old men make deals, and they'd given up the women and children. Omer was prepared to entertain the idea that it had been unintentional. Gods liked their irony, they liked complications. Desperation should not be something you bring to the table. But the world had been going to hell. He'd seen things in those days, before the deal, things that could make a man believe in demons and gods, and how they might just tear everything apart. Tears streamed down his face. But they gave no relief. He cried. He cried. He folded the photo away. He showered, but the water offered no comfort. Hard and frustratingly unctuous, it didn't lather, but lingered. He went to bed, the sheets gritty as his skin, gritty with the leavings of his skin. He dreamt his wife called him across the dark. There was a rage there, an accusation of love unfulfilled. Deep down he knew he had let this happen. They all had. He'd never understood the deal. But who really understood half of what was going on, what they'd agreed to? Still he ran through all that night, ran towards the voice, because there had to be a way he could turn it all back. Bean's appearance was sudden, the dream shifting, like the deal had shifted their world. Enough there, Chief. You're making it personal, and if we all did that, we'd have a right mess on our hands. He lifted the chain with one hand. Omer could see where the metal fused with his flesh. You want to be personal? You think about this chain. You think about what's happening to Jacoby. Those things are intimate enough. Those things hurt. He's screaming, Ulmer. Do you think your wife screamed? Do you think your kids howled out their pain? Ulmer woke. His eyes snapped open. The dead bloke's face was in his window. The one with the teeth. The bastard grinned. Ulmer stashed his gun, but the bloke had gone. He got up, dressed, and called Jacoby. There was no answer. The phone rang out twice. He checked the time, two o'clock in the morning. Two blocks away, just two blocks to Jacoby's apartment. He ran all the way. Ulmer's shoulder heard from battering down the door, slowed him down as he fumbled for his gun. The doll had wrapped itself around Jacoby, its hands buried to the wrists in his bowels, Haruspicating something, lifting up organs for closer scrutiny. Its head snapped around towards him, big, unblinking eyes, bloody lips twisted in a smile. Let him come first, the doll said in its wind-up voice. There are worse ways to die. It rose to its feet, and bits of Jacoby, tangles of bowel and gut rose with it, and then fell away. Omer fired. His first shot smashed the mirror behind the doll's head and made it a crown of doll reflections. Worse ways to die. It sounded almost remorseful as it rushed towards him. Omer fired again. 
The bullet took off its head. He fired again through the belly. The doll stumbled and fell, its bloody hands swinging, catching his legs. Ulmer kicked at its arms, then crushed his delicate joints beneath his boots. The wood was fleshy and hollow. It bled dark fluids. Ulmer kicked the doll away from him. He crouched over his partner and closed Jacoby's eyes. In the cavity of his partner's belly, Ulmer saw the rabbit's foot. Jacoby had thrown it away yesterday. Ulmer fished it out. He could hear the sirens drawing near. He suddenly felt suffocated in that room, the air too hot. He loosened his tie and got out. "'I thought I would see you,' Bean said. Ulmer slipped the paper bag holding the burger and fries across the desk. Bean unfolded the bag. He plucked out a fry. His nose wrinkled, but he ate the fry anyway, gobbled it down, and the next, and the next. "'I heard about Jacoby,' Bean said between mouthfuls, the fries not crunching but cracking, and far louder than they ought in his mouth. Little bony detonations. "'I told you to leave this alone.' "'I know you did.' He pulled the rabbit's foot from his pocket. Jacoby threw this away, and it came back. Not so lucky for him, was it? So what do I do? Leave it alone. And if I can't? Bean unwrapped the burger, slid the whole thing in his mouth, and swallowed. He wiped at his lips with a napkin. When did you last go to the beach? Find me one of those dead blokes, if you can't leave it alone. Find me one of them and bring it back here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You do that, and you'll have your answer. Ulmer lit a smoke. His hands shook. The black dunes of the beach steamed. The dark water crashed in. He sat just out of the water's reach. Few came here. Few cared to scrutinize the things that washed ashore, the implications of these fragments of past, invitations written on soft paper, ink bleeding from submersion, children's toys, Nappies and video cassettes that wouldn't play, but had notes like wedding, Sharon's first birthday written on them. They were all, as Almer's dream had been, accusatory. Almer came here precisely for that reason. He sought the pain. There was a storm building, and he stood with his back to it, facing the water, the restless dark, alone. Not quite. A figure stood watching him down the beach. I know you, Ulmer said, and walked over to him, touching his gun periodically for a modicum of comfort. The dead bloke smiled. 
Where is your mate? Almer asked. Still in the desert? The dead bloke shrugged. I've got something for you. Almer passed him the photo. The dead bloke shook his head and passed it back. Almer folded the photo and put it in his jacket pocket. Almer considered cuffing him, then changed his mind. He didn't want it attached to him. You coming with me? The dead bloke nodded. When they reached town, Almer bought a burger and fries and a soft drink. You can't take him down there, Dorian said, looking up from the front desk. I think I can. Almer tapped his pistol. The desk sergeant was quick, but Almer was faster. He pumped two shots into Dorian's chest. The big man grunted. Doing you a favor, Almer thought, as Dorian fell dead on his porn. He reached over and pulled the keys from Dorian's pocket. There was a bell ringing somewhere. He didn't have much time. He could feel being down there, waiting, like lungs, waiting for the next breath, like a heart between two beats. The dead bloke grinned, like he was waiting to see how this played out. Almer could hear people running. Someone shouted out his name. He fired a shot down the hallway. Almer took the dead bloke down to the basement, locking the doors behind him as he went. Almer put his offering on the desk. A few stories above, someone kicked at a door. What splintered? Do you know what I am? Bean asked. His eyes weren't on the food, but trained on the dead bloke at Almer's side. Almer shook his head. Nahibakau and me, we made a deal. I stay down here, and he stays up there. Sounds like a good deal. Bean laughed. You know that shit, Almer. The thing is, you humans start making deals and they diminish you, bit by bit. Sure, you wanted a better world, a safer world from that coming dark. You think this is a better world? That's the way it's always been. People are always making deals, Ulmer. A new deal's been made from above, and like always, you little people, you just play them out. Truth is, you're living in our world now. Old deal, new deal, it was only ever going to get worse. If you'd been looking, you might have seen it in those dead bloke's guts, or Jacoby's. You might have realized you were jumping hoops. It ain't fair, and I pity you as much as I can with all this hunger. Another door crashed from its hinges. People shouted. The dead bloke walked over to Bean. Almer shot the dead bloke in the leg. Slowed him, didn't stop him. The dead bloke lifted the silver chain to his mouth. He opened his jaw, bit down. The silver links shattered. Bean filled the basement. All that released presence, though he still sat behind the desk. He smiled, and that grin widened and widened and widened. He hadn't touched the burger this time. He pushed it carefully distastefully to one side. Almer fired at Bean's head once and then again. The bullets just passed through him. Bean didn't even blink. I'm going to make you a deal, Bean said, and he didn't move his lips. The words just slithered in Almer's skull like they were a garrulous parasite or an infection. You're not going to like it but it's the best you're going to get. There's no one batting for you now. I'm going to give you a few minutes to run. Hey, you might even get longer on account of what's approaching. The last door broke. The cops were coming for Bean, coming to contain the beast, but he knew they couldn't anymore. He knew that Bean was right. A new deal had been struck. Bean had sucked their bones dry before he was done, and then he would be coming for him. Outside, old Nahibakau would be gone. 
Gods liked their complications. No sheath of snake, just cold void, cruel and endless, and Bean. I said, run! Bean's voice filled his head. Ulmer ran. His fellow coppers, half a dozen men, moved out of his way. He cursed them for it, that they should let him pass so unchallenged, that they should go to their death so easily. But he didn't stop, didn't look back. He ran up the stairs, his breath and his pounding heart roaring in his head, filling the space Bean's voice had made. Behind him, in screams and gunshots and wet, horrible noises, the new deal unfolded. Ooh, it's a creepy one, eh? This one gives me the shivers. Did it you? Our second story today is less creepy, but just as unsettling in a subtly different way. It's called Disillusions, and it's written by Mike Resnick and Lawrence Schimmel. Mike Resnick is the winner of five Hugo Awards from a record 36 nominations, plus a Nebula and other major awards in the USA, France, Spain, Poland, Catalonia, Croatia and Japan. He has written 75 novels, close to 300 stories and three screenplays. He has edited 41 anthologies and is currently the editor of Galaxy's Edge magazine. Lawrence Schimmel writes in both Spanish and English and has published over a hundred books as author or anthologist. He lives in Madrid, in Spain, where he works as a Spanish-to-English translator. A pair of extremely interesting gentlemen who have crafted a truly lovely story. It is read for us by Catherine Inskip, a charming lady who weighs galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She's addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. So here it is. Disillusions by Mike Resnick and Lauren Schimmel Disillusions by Mike Resnick and Lauren Schimmel They were gathered in the great hall when Edward looked up with an expectant smile on his face. An instant later, it started raining toads inside the castle. As the guests began screaming, Edward waved his hand, and suddenly the rug itself became a thousand mouths, each gobbling up one or more toads. But as the last of the toads were eaten, the mouths became insatiable and started gnawing upon the furniture. Another wave of Edward's hand, and the furniture turned to solid gold. Teeth cracked against it. Mouths withdrew, and, sprouting wings, the furniture began hovering a few inches about the rug, daring it to test its strength once again. The mouths vanished, the furniture gently came to rest upon it, and golden legs metamorphosed into wood, as Edward grinned and bowed deeply for his applauding audience. Vivian sighed, wishing she were elsewhere, but she displayed no outward sign of her boredom laughing along with the other assembled members of the thirteen families. She tried to recall when it was that the magic had faded from her and Edward's relationship. There was a time when his every trick delighted her, simply because they were his. Now, when they made love, she murmured cantrips she pretended were moans of ecstasy to disguise his appearance with that of another man. Any other man. She didn't care. Somewhere along the way, things had come undone. Her heart, which once had felt as buoyant as the Emperor's sailships, now felt as if it were a splintered wreckage of silken sails and ebony timber, as if the spells which had kept it aloft had malfunctioned, now that Edward's sorceries no longer amused her. He seemed to send the craft hurtling earthward once again into the mud. All of Constantinople looked muddy to her now, the bright and glittering splendour eclipsed by her mood, as if the sun had become blotted out by a cloud of dust, or had simply stopped shining altogether. An intricately patterned python engulfed Edward in coils from behind his chair. Edward opened his mouth wide enough to accommodate the snake's thick body 
and swiftly consumed it, as the assembled elite erupted once more into laughter, like giddy schoolgirls over some tidbit of gossip. Vivian was so tired of it all, and of Edward in particular. Something was lacking in him, something which she desperately craved from him, though she could not pinpoint precisely what was wanting. She wondered, not for the first time, what he was truly like beneath his illusions and spells. If, perhaps, accidentally, she might once have seen the true Edward, even as she gave him other men's faces to while the time away, might have seen the man he was beneath his young and virile exterior. Vivian herself augmented her looks, retarding the vagaries of ageing with spells and illusions. But she imagined the true Edward to be a void, as if he were nothing more than his elaborate and powerful sorceries. Though young, and not merely young-seeming, he was unquestionably the most powerful magic-maker in the city, and therefore the most celebrated member of the Thirteen Families, who were Constantinople's most accomplished magicians and who enforced that status with a swift and iron fist, although always from afar, and via their magic, so as never to sully their own fingers. It had been a coup for Vivian to attract his attentions, and even more so to have kept them this long. Although, knowing Edward as she did, Vivian found the task simplicity itself. For all his sorceries, Edward seemed lacking in all artifice in life, easily swayed and manipulated by her cunning. Vivian spent long hours concealing his naivety, protecting him, and her own position as his consort and lover, from others who would exploit him. That was reserved for Vivian alone. But even that privilege had long since paled in its thrill, and was now more of a chore than anything else, defending her throne from any and all assailants, petty and avert. Of a sudden, Vivian's chair dropped through the floor, which had opened a hole as quickly as a champagne bubble bursting up from the glass's bottom to crack the surface with fizz. She idly wondered whether to cast about for some spell to save her life, lest she fall to her death from the heights of the castle they'd been visiting. But she trusted Edward would spare a moment's thought for her and save her, if this were not in fact another of his own pranks. Vivian took the moment to enjoy her respite from the society of her fellow members of the Thirteen Families, who in their aggregate sum she found quite tedious and sadly droll. She stared down at the city from her aerial vantage, the grand concourse, hub of Constantinople and gate through which all visitors passed, the golden globe that shined down from above its dome an earthly sun, and a short ways to the left, the cathedral, equally majestic in its non-magical splendour of stone and human construction that rivalled, nay, dwarfed the magical fabrications which had sprung up along and beyond the road that stretched between the grand concourse and the cathedral, puny and insubstantial flights of fancy. Her reverie was interrupted by Edward wrapping his arms about her from behind the chair and squeezing her tightly, almost like a python he had produced earlier. Were you not even the slightest bit concerned? he asked, burying his face in her long, curly black locks, and running his hands up along her belly to her breasts. You looked so ravishing up there. I couldn't help stealing you away. Let's make love in mid-air, he whispered into her ear. For the world to see, like some common sailor and his whore? We're invisible, he said, fumbling at the laces of her dress and Vivian knew that in that moment he had indeed made them so. Please, Edward, you know it's not that I don't trust your spells to keep us aloft, but I really do prefer the comforts of solid ground beneath my feet, and a bed, and... Vivian had a long catalogue of her preferences, hoping she might thereby be able to put him off, but they were suddenly back in Edward's terrestrial palaces. For all his sorcerous might, he had constructed his home of natural substances, though equally elaborate and plush as the wholly dreamed airborne castles of his peers, if Vivian needed to suffer the emotional discomforts of making love to him, she would rather it occur among the creature comforts she had grown accustomed to as his consort. 
Edward lifted her in his arms and placed her upon the thick, feathered comforter of the bed they shared, climbing atop her. The words to the spell which would change Edward's appearance began running through her mind, and at the first opportunity she uttered them, her fingers clawing Edward's back as she twisted them to form the proper signs. Edward mistook the signs as Vivian goading him, and was further aroused. He no longer bothered with the clasps and stays of her clothing, but made the entire contraption disappear in an instant, leaving her body naked beneath him. Mercifully, it was over in a few minutes, and Edward fell promptly asleep. The moment he began to snore, Vivian extracted herself from beneath him and pushed away from the bed. She went into the bathroom, locking the door behind her, though she knew such a safeguard meant little to Edward, or practically any of Constantinople's inhabitants for that matter. In this city of magicians, it was simplicity itself to cause a lock to undo itself with a spell most children learned before they had stopped wetting their pants. Still, it was something Vivian felt compelled to do, an emotional signal to herself that she was locking him and them out. She let the illusions fall from her body and stood regarding herself in the mirrored wall before stopping to run hot water into a basin and scrub his scent from her skin with sponges and soaps. It was a long time before she again felt clean. Vivian toweled herself dry, though she might as easily have spelled herself so. It was not that she disdained magic or its benefits. Like all the other inhabitants of Constantinople, Vivian's life was thoroughly saturated with magic. She practised it daily, casting spells and illusions almost before thinking, and that was why she preferred to dry herself, and to perform a hundred other tasks manually, lest she become so dependent on magic that she lose herself to it. It kept her alert to consciously not use her magic to handle the minor details of life, and it was that alertness of mind and attention to detail which was how she had been able to attract and keep Edward's infatuation all these years. Staring at her image in the mirror, Vivian had to ask herself if the effort was worth while. Not the honing of her consciousness, that she would not forsake even for all of Edward's powers, but Edward himself. True, while she lived in Constantinople, his presence in her life gave her access to a society and privilege to which she could not otherwise hope to aspire. But, having now climbed her way, all the way to the top, up even to their airborne palaces which floated high above Constantinople's towers, Vivian found herself bored. Life was too easy. That was, perhaps, what bothered her about Edward. Because of him, there was no longer any sense of competition in her life, no challenge for anything. Edward could, by force of magic, do or give her anything she desired. And... Since he was so easy for her to manipulate, he did. Vivian had nothing left to stimulate her, and her frustration was driving her to distraction. Though she was free to roam throughout Constantinople, she was trapped by her relationship. She looked at herself in the mirror, saw how she was getting so much older, despite the care she took with her body. Her once raven-dark hair was now heavily greying beneath her illusions. How much longer could she live like this? Vivian felt she would die, suffocated by the tedium of this life and illusion. She almost thought she would have been more content to have stayed far from the city, to have become some farmer's wife, the two of them forever battling with nature to eke out a living for themselves and their family. Vivian knew, of course, that such positing was idle, especially surrounded by such pampering splendour as she was right then. But she would at least have felt alive every day in such a life, she thought. Bitter, perhaps. But she felt bitter now, and with less reason. But could she give it all up? Relinquish her status, the power at her command through Edward, the feeling of overwhelming boredom and discontent she felt of her life? Vivian wasn't quite sure. All her life her mind had been set to climbing to this pinnacle. To climb down now seemed too much like a defeat. And besides, she had no new goal to replace this one. She sighed and left her bathroom, hurrying quickly through the bedroom where Edward still snored beneath the rumpled blue comforter. In her closet, she put on a light dressing robe, 
and was about to leave their apartment and find some more secluded part of the castle, perhaps overlooking the ever-changing mosaic of the city, to ponder further her dilemma. When she spied herself in a small wall mirror and noticed she had forgotten to put on her illusion of her younger self, the words to the spell leapt immediately to her lips as she reached for the door-handle. But Vivian paused. She wondered what it might be like to walk about as her true self, to discard her despised life in this small trial. It was not as if she would be seen by anyone of import, just a few servants, if anyone at all. Pleased with herself, Vivian reveled in the sensation of being free of cloaking illusions as she walked through the familiar halls of Edward's palace. These walls, too, were authentic in their substance. The stone floor was cold beneath her feet. Hardly any other palace in Constantinople could boast the same. They were all fabrications. Her naked foot would tread upon illusions of soft rugs or stones that were always the proper warmth. But Edward, as a show of ostentation, had forgone the magic-made palace, and instead used his magic to command a vast wealth of natural substance into his abode. The other members of the thirteen families thought it eccentric and odd that he chose to remain so terrestrial, while all of them had set their palaces drifting among the clouds. But its simplicity, its genuineness, not to mention the incredible magic it took to construct it, manipulating that which already existed, rather than summoning from nothing what was desired, were what had attracted Vivian to Edward in the first place. She stared from a window, at the city spread below her, and all the cluster of fanciful and impossible buildings, illuminated by the golden globe which hung above the grand concourse. She had loved him once, that she couldn't deny. But something had happened, and that love had simply vanished, like one of his illusions. Pop, and it was gone. As if, Vivian thought, staring at the shining golden globe, as if one day it simply vanished, and, as if in mute response to Vivian's thoughts, the golden globe did just that. Vivian blinked against the sudden dimness and wondered, awed, what had happened. Had she caused it to go out? How furious everyone would be! She felt a momentary giddy delight as she surveyed the city, now cast into twilight. There was still light coming from somewhere. Ah, yes, the sun! How easy to have forgotten that it still shone, eclipsed by the brighter, magical sun that had been created ages ago, and which was held in place by the collective unconscious of Constantinople. Vivian was awed that she, by herself, had been able to counteract that force of will which all these years had kept the golden globe in place. And suddenly, staring at the city in the dimness, Vivian realised that it had not been her at all. The fanciful and impossible buildings which had clogged the streets were gone. In their place stood sordid and dilapidated constructions of plain wood and brick. As she watched this diminished city, a sail-ship fell from the sky and splintered into rubble. Vivian tried to cast a spell, to bring her customary illusions into place, a spell that was so ingrained into her mind that she could maintain it even when unconscious. But her body would not grow younger, and her hair stayed grey, picking up what little light there was. It had not been Vivian at all which extinguished the golden globe, but rather the fact that throughout the city the magic had been used up. The thought delighted her. She imagined the airborne castles of the thirteen families plummeting like the sailship she had seen in great disastrous wreckages. And Edward? Now he was just an ordinary mortal like everyone else. All his powerful sorceries were gone, vanished on the winds. Vivian could not help wondering what he truly looked like without his disguises if there was any substance to him at all. She hurried back along the corridors, feeling along the walls with her fingers, since the magical lights which once had illumined them were absent now. Their bedroom, at least, would still be lit from the large windows that looked out over the gardens. Vivian paused before the door, savouring the moment, delaying it. She had wondered for so long what Edward truly looked like. 
she did not want to diminish her discovery by rushing through it. She imagined how he would look as her fingers turned upon the knob, positing some obese and slobbering old man in her mind, the way the grand and fanciful buildings had reverted to run-down tenements without the magic to support them, how much easier it would be to hate him, knowing his true and repulsive form. Vivian thought she was braced for anything he might seem, any repulsive, disgusting form that she found lying in her bed, a form that she knew she had made love to hundreds and hundreds of times. She had thought she was braced for anything, but what she found took her completely by surprise. Edward had not changed at all. The sheets only partially covered his finely sculpted naked body. Even his teeth were perfectly straight. She could not resist pulling back the covers, to learn that even there his endowment was no illusion but his natural-born manhood. And suddenly Vivian understood what was wrong with their relationship. Edward was all surface. With him there was nothing else, nothing deeper, no soul. He had the thin veneer of society with which he had been born. Good looks, good breeding, and that was it. She laughed out loud, but softly, not wanting to wake him. She wondered how he would feel, suddenly helpless, when moments before he had been the most powerful person in the city. He would be crippled without his sorcery, she was certain, like a month-old baby. Vivian did not know how long she stood, staring down at him, pitying both him and herself. She made plans, now that Constantinople had crumbled and was grateful that Edward had constructed his palace rather than imagining it. They would likely have been killed by the fall, had he followed the fashion of the other members of the thirteen families. Vivian wondered how many of them still survived. She could not say she regretted their imagined deaths, and Edward's physical palace would provide the means to establish a life elsewhere. She would take certain objects with her when she left, items that were portable yet valuable the silver, a gold vase, but even the thought of sudden poverty did not dismay Vivian. She was brimming over with excitement, and stayed only for the pleasure of watching Edward's face when he awoke and discovered that he was powerless. Then, suddenly, light flooded the room. The globe was back, and so was the city, restored to its original ostentation of imagination. As Vivian watched, reassembled palaces climbed slowly back into the sky as her plans and hopes sunk. Behind her, Edward woke and, dreamy-eyed, reached for her. Vivian found herself suddenly, magically, in bed with him, cuddling beneath the covers. I had the most awful dream, Edward whispered in her ear, running his hand down her back and along her buttocks. I dreamed that the magic had gone away. He laughed, and began kissing her neck. The magic had returned. But staring at Edward, who held her in his strong and powerful arms, Vivian knew that the magic was still gone. So that's it. Once again, it has been my pleasure to bring you the stories today. Keep listening, keep sharing, tell your friends or drop us a review. There are so many stories out there, and the District of Wonders wants to bring them all to you. Don't forget that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. So until next week, when we can curl up again with a good drink and listen to some more stories together. Namaste. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.